The reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 25. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well on in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of, and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Luke opens his gospel with the birth of a very special baby. 
But not as you might first think the birth of Jesus. It's the birth of his cousin, John the Baptist, whose job will be, in effect, to work as Jesus' roadie, to go on ahead and make sure everything is ready for him when he arrives, to set up uh, the star of the show and make sure everyone's prepared. All of that will happen some 30 years after both babies are born. Even in the stories of their respective births, John's role is that of being a witness to his greater cousin Jesus. Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother's womb, he jumps up and down with excitement when Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, comes to visit his mother Elizabeth, which you can't help thinking must have been quite uncomfortable for Elizabeth, five months pregnant and all that. And while John's conception is certainly quite remarkable, given the age of his parents, it pales into insignificance compared with the story of how Jesus is conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. That makes him the Son of God. So while the angel declares of John that he will be great, as indeed he would be, Jesus himself said that he was the greatest man ever born, yet it's clear that Jesus is far, far greater. John would say he wasn't worthy to bend down and untie his cousin's sandals. So if the account of John's conception and birth heralds the arrival of a great man into the world, we know as well that the one for whom he prepares the way will be even greater. So John is to come in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling prophecies that the prophet Elijah would return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Elijah coming back would presage nothing less than the coming of God himself. And it's said of John that he would bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he would get people ready for the coming of none other than the Lord God himself. John would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to a right way of thinking. His job was to make sure that when Jesus appeared, people were ready and waiting. A moment ago, I referred to Jesus' acclamation of John the Baptist, saying that among those born of women, there was none greater than John. But Jesus went on immediately to add, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In other words, if you belong to God's kingdom, if you've been born again as one of God's children by the Spirit of God, then you, even the most insignificant and least among you, is greater than John the Baptist who was the greatest person ever born up until that point in time. Let your significance and importance in the sight of God then be a measure of your own self-esteem before God. Yet if our status in the sight of God is comparable to that of John the Baptist, so is our role and purpose in God's sight. John's task was to prepare people for the coming of God into the world, and the same task falls to us. As John proclaimed the message of good news to the world, we are entrusted with the same message. And as John was equipped to be God's messenger, because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, so it's in God's heart to fill us with his Holy Spirit as well, so that we can be his effective witnesses. And as John broadcast the news of the coming of God into the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, so equally do we, and we do so at two levels. Firstly, in the midst of the increasingly breathless shopping frenzy that seems to accompany each year's run-up to Christmas, it falls to us to say Christmas is not all about the decorations and the turkey and the presents and the shopping, but it's about the one whom all the fuss is supposed to be about anyway, 
and yet who is so easily forgotten in the midst of it all? Jesus. It's his coming into the world that we celebrate this Christmas time. He should be the focus of it all. And we need to keep that focus in our minds, in the midst of all the pressures that crowd in on us. But equally, as we thought last Sunday evening, we need to remember as well that Jesus is coming back again one day in power and glory, and our task is to be witnesses to that truth as well. In the spiritual vacuum that currently allows all kinds of unhealthy extremist views to flourish, we are called to be expectant witnesses and heralds of the coming of God's kingdom which has the power here and now to transform people's lives and communities, and which when Jesus finally does return will do nothing less than transform and redeem the entire world-created order. So in the midst of disillusionment and anxiety and stress, we are called to be expectant people of hope and faith, because the future belongs to God. It's God's kingdom that's coming. And we know it's coming because God's Son has come into the world. John's mission is described in two specific ways that have direct relevance to us. Today, though we're thousands of miles away from the land of Israel and hundreds of years later, John's task is to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah and do two things. He's to make people prepared for the Lord by turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and to make people prepared for the Lord by turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. I want to think about those two things for a bit. What's all this about turning the hearts of fathers to their children? It wasn't so long ago, actually, that fathers were being written off as being superfluous to to requirements. Men, you can manage perfectly well without them. A mother is entirely capable of bringing up children by herself, and the father really is quite unnecessary. Now, while there's no doubt that an absent father is better than a father who is physically, sexually, or emotionally abusive, there is an increasing amount of research saying, actually, fathers are quite important, really. In the Daily Telegraph this week, the readers of the Daily Telegraph will have spotted this, Christina Odoni, if that's how you pronounce her name, goes so far as to suggest that, if anything, studies show that mothers are more dispensable than fathers. Because one element many troubled youths, especially boys, have in common is an absent father. If there's trouble, it's often associated with the absent father figure. She points out that when David Lanny, MP for Tottenham, regularly visited Feltham Young Offenders Institution, he found that most of the inmates had no access to their fathers. Harriet Sargent, a journalist who spent several years investigating black youth gangs, has found that her subjects speak fondly of their experience in prison. It's the one time, they say, that they had father figures in their lives. Watch David McKenzie's film, Start Up, the other day. story of a violent young offender in an adult prison and his troubled relationship with his father and explores the whole issue of the father figure and the effect on young offenders and violence. Before you put it on your Christmas list, it fully merits its 18 rating, so let me warn you of that. But the issue of fathers and the relationship to troubled young people is a major one in our society today. And John's ministry of turning the hearts of the fathers to their children continues to be 
important. An active and nurturing style of fathering is associated with better verbal skills for children, intellectual functioning, academic achievement among adolescents. Even from birth, children have a father who is involved and more likely to be emotionally secure, be confident in exploring their surroundings, and have better social connections with their peers as they grow up. Children with a father around are less likely to get in trouble at home, school, or in the neighbourhood. They're less likely to experience depression or experience disruptive behaviour or to be dishonest. Boys with involved fathers have fewer school problems. Girls have stronger self-esteem. Numerous studies have found that children who live with their fathers are more likely to have good physical and emotional health, to achieve academically, to avoid drugs, violence and delinquent behaviour, and so on and so forth. What are we to make of this, this particular congregation here tonight? And those listening by podcast. If you're a dad... It's clear you need to invest emotionally in your children. Bringing them up is a task that you can't delegate to the mother and wash your hands off. It's a task in which you need to be fully involved from the word go. And where there are families where the father has left home, sometimes that can be the lesser of two evils if they have no contact with their children. But if you are the mother of a child whose father isn't around, then as long as it doesn't put the child at risk... In the long term, it may well benefit the child if you encourage a positive relationship between them and their father, even though that might be difficult for you personally. And I say that even though I recognise that's walking into an emotional minefield. But there's more. Because if Harriet Sargent is right in her perception that prison is the first place where many young men find a father figure, then that is a disaster. But any young person or child who comes into contact with a church should be able to find a father figure here. This should be a place where people can see effective male role models of how to behave, how to form relationships founded in openness, mutual respect and trust. And if that's to happen, then church and the modelling of Christian behaviour can't be left to the women. You men who are listening by podcast who aren't here tonight, take that on board. Today in our society, in direct continuity with the ministry of John the Baptist, part of our role in church is to promote good father figures in and beyond the family, continuing his much-needed ministry of turning the hearts of fathers to their children. Because it's vital. The breakdown of relationship from one generation to the next contributes to the ill in society today. But I recognise I'm talking to a minority of people here in this congregation at the moment. But those of you who are young men, bear that in mind as you get older, when you have children of your own. And let's recognise that this is a place where people should be able to find figures that they can look up to and respect in terms of good relationships. But the other thing in which John was engaged was was turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Though the word for wisdom there may be better translated as a way of thinking or a mindset. Part of John's ministry was to change the way in which people think. And that should be part of our ministry as well. Because subconscious feelings of fear, anger or shame and guilt, can make our habitual thought patterns quite toxic, actually. 
so that we end up thinking that anything less than perfect is a failure. Or we feel that life is just one disappointment after another. Or we can be afraid that if people knew what we were really like on the inside, they would reject us, they wouldn't accept us. Or sometimes we can go through life expecting everything always to go wrong. Nothing is ever going to go right or come right for us. These are all unhealthy patterns of thinking that can be grounded in fear or deep-seated personal insecurities. And they can often become self-fulfilling prophecies. If you think that people aren't going to like you, it's very easy for them not to like you because you distance yourself from them. If you expect everything is always going to go wrong, then that is what you will look for that will happen. If you think that anything less than perfection is a failure, then you're not going to put the effort in because you never think you're going to succeed. If you think that life is just one disappointment after another, you'll be missing the successes because you'll be concentrating on the disappointments. These are all unhealthy patterns of thinking that could be quite toxic to our well-being and to our behaviour. The problem is, my apologies to him because his Polish name is unpronounceable, someone has said, unless a person knows how to give order to his or her thoughts, attention will be attracted to what is most problematic at the moment. It will focus on some real or imaginary pain or recent grudges or long-term frustrations. In other words, if we don't have self-control in our minds, our thoughts will naturally veer to the negative. That is part of original sin, if you like. That is part of living in a dislocated society. That is part of our natural tendency. Mostly, there are exceptions, mostly, if we don't bother with our minds, our minds will not focus on stuff that is good and positive. Our minds will veer towards stuff that is negative and destructive and harmful to ourselves and to others. Our natural tendency, if we don't exercise self-control in our minds, is to be negative. And one of the tasks of John the Baptist was to change the pattern of people's thinking, to change the mindset, the thought patterns of the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to say, this is not the way that you should be thinking. We know John's ministry was one of repentance. Repentance starts with a change of thought. Change of thought precedes a change of lifestyle. The first place the good news can have an impact is on the way we think, on our mindset, on our thought patterns. The good news calls us not just to accept, well, this is the way I am. It calls us to make a decision about our self-understanding, about our perception of ourselves. We are called to a crisis of decision. And the decision to accept Jesus as Lord will make a difference to how we think about ourselves and how we think about our situation. The decision to accept Jesus as Lord can set us free from ourselves, first of all, from destructive patterns of thinking. To accept Jesus as Lord can enable us to begin to live life a different way because he will exercise control in our minds and cause us out of negative patterns of thinking into thinking differently about ourselves and our situations and the future. 
A new self-understanding, a new perception of who we are can transform our whole situation because we see other people, we see the whole world, we see ourselves in a new light. And as our new self-understanding is renewed day by day, we become open to new possibilities and encounters and prepared for new demands. Because the good news calls us to a new understanding that's fundamentally grounded in faith rather than fear. That's the fundamental change. Faith rather than fear. And because that faith is faith in Christ rather than in ourselves or in other people who let us down, it is a faith that is well-grounded. So part of our calling today is to invite people to embrace new patterns of thinking, to see themselves and the world in a different way, to develop that self-control under Christ, to think differently, to adopt a right way of thinking rather than those thought patterns that are negative and destructive. So our task, part of it at least, is to make people ready for the coming of the Lord by turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and inviting people to a different perception of themselves, a different way of thinking. And there is a link between the two because so often our negative impressions of ourselves and others are grounded in our relationship with our parents. We are called to model what it means to have good intergenerational relationships. We are called to model what it means to live as people whose minds are governed by the Spirit and the peace of Christ. We are called to show people the way and to invite them to follow that way themselves. And we can't make people ready for the coming of the Lord by dressing up in camel skins and denouncing people's sins by the River Jordan as John the Baptist did, or the River Aaron, as we're here in Horsham. It's not really deep enough to baptise many people in any way. But our first call, the place we begin, is to model kingdom living. And because kingdom living is distinctive, it will be noticed. And the second step is not to be afraid of saying why we live the way we live and think the way we think. The way to prepare people for the coming of the kingdom is to model kingdom living in our relationships and our thought patterns. And if we do this, there will still be plenty of people who decide that Christianity is not for them, thank you very much indeed, but they won't be able to dismiss it as irrelevant this Christmas time. Because the way in which we think affects the way in which we live, and that affects our relationships with each other. So go and play your part in getting people ready for the coming of the Lord this year by demonstrating what it means to live for him in your mind, in your lifestyle, in your relationships.